It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of murder, violence, alcohol abuse, and discrimination against people with disabilities. Light shone through the hole in the chimney. Elisha Thomas's soot-stung eyes must have blinked, taking in the dawn. The sight of the spring sunshine meant that death was certain for Thomas. Escape had still seemed possible the previous night, on April 30th, 1788. Under the guise of visiting the prisoner, Thomas's friends had smuggled him a sharp metal instrument, a pair of pincers. Thomas used those to snap off his chains. Then, he made a run at the jail's large fireplace. Not so long ago, 
Thomas lost his home and most of his children in a fire. Now he plunged himself into the smoky darkness. The 42-year-old climbed and scraped up the narrow tunnel. Once he'd reached a certain height, Thomas stabbed at the chimney with the pincers until he created a hole big enough to clamber through. But it was too late. Thomas couldn't hope to flee in broad daylight. One imagines he must have drank in the clear, chilly air, felt the sun on his dirty face for a moment, before sinking back down the chimney to await his fate. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Captain and the Killer, a dispute at Mr. Randall's Tavern. Most of the restaurant murders we cover on this podcast tend to have occurred relatively recently. But today, we're going to mix things up and talk about our oldest case yet. This is a homicide that happened when the United States of America was in its infancy. And it's a murder that Anya has been wanting to cover for quite some time. I earned my bachelor's degree in history at the College of William & Mary, across the street from Colonial Williamsburg. That means that I spent four years in close proximity to a living history museum, complete with four reconstructed colonial taverns that now serve visiting tourists. So I've always been sure to cast a wide net when I was looking for cases to add to the murder sheet. And I was excited to come across the work of the Criminal Justice Research Center at The Ohio State University. CJRC maintains an incredible historical violence database, cataloging all sorts of crimes. I pulled the story of Elisha Thomas out of a file titled Homicide Among Adults in New Hampshire and Vermont, 1775 to 1900, which was compiled by history professor Randolph Roth. We last left Thomas facing death in the chimney. He would go on to become the first man ever hanged to death in Dover, New Hampshire, 
for now, let's pull him out of that cramped space and situate him in the time and place where he lived. Thomas resided in New Durham, New Hampshire, which is now a town of a little over 2,500 in the Granite State, Stratford County. The day we're concerned with was February 4th of the year 1788. That's an important moment. When the winter snows melted and spring bloomed into summer, New Hampshire would become the ninth state to ratify the United States Constitution. Britain's American colonies declared their independence just 12 years before, and the American Revolutionary War had ended just five years earlier. Thomas played a role in the founding, fighting on the rebel side. But Thomas didn't stop fighting when the war ended. He couldn't. You see, he'd lost his thumb in the war. Today in 2022, we live in a society that in many ways discriminates against people with disabilities. We know firsthand about the obstacle course that our state puts people with disabilities and their families through, the never-ending push to procure basic social services. That being said, in the study of history, you don't necessarily want to put a presentist lens on the past. That's when you make assumptions about historical events based on your own present-day attitudes. So we interviewed Dr. Laurel Dane, a historian and professor at Notre Dame, to get a better sense of the challenges that Thomas could have faced after the musket smoke cleared. Dane is a historian of disability, an emerging field, who earned her PhD at William & Mary and now focuses on the early American period. In her work, she has encountered a historical narrative that pre-Industrial Revolution America was actually more inclusive for people with disabilities, and that perhaps the classification of individuals as disabled is a more modern construction. That's not a school of thought that she signs off on, though. Here's Dr. Dane. I think it can be kind of dangerous to paint the earlier period as a sort of golden age. As a, as a scholar of disability and civil rights, I will also say, I mean, there were major legal, political, uh, social restrictions and exclusions for disabled people in this period. Becoming disabled, whether it's physically, intellectually, and it depended certainly on the circumstance, but might prevent you from settling in a town, gaining kind of the rights of settlement, from testifying in court, from voting, from owning property. Like there's many major legal, political, social restrictions and exclusions. So I don't think it's quite as happy as sort of other, some other scholars have suggested. I think it's contested, but I would say that it's hard to say whether it's kind of better or worse, but it is a society that where ableism is, is deeply rooted. So where did that leave Thomas? Back in 1788, the father of six was left without the full use of one of his hands in an economy that was still primarily agrarian and based on manual labor. That was bound to make his life more difficult. And it's not as if authorities in the fledgling country were swooping in to make things easier for veterans with disabilities. Because while the soldiers who served in the American Revolution may have been hailed as heroes today, that didn't mean that they received a hero's compensation back in their own lifetimes, not even when they'd shed their own blood to help win the war. Here's Dr. Dane. In the years after the war, there was major political, economic, social upheaval. 
well. The war is costly in terms of human lives as well as resources. It launches the nation into a major economic depression. So in the 1780s, there are uh, there's you know, financial panics, there's disruptions in trade, the continental currency is depreciated, um, and then the confederal government uh, is really largely powerless to address these issues. So this created challenges for nearly all citizens, including disabled veterans, but maybe especially disabled veterans because they were paid in this continental currency um, that had, was severely depreciated. So um, financially, that was challenging. Also, you know, they're they're going to be managing new conditions that they're experiencing, physical, intellectual, sensory mobility um, impairments, um, managing those within their families, their households, and, you know, kind of trying to make ends meet. So yes, I think this in terms of status, like this is a really particularly challenging time for many people in, in the new United States, and especially for disabled veterans. To the south, in Massachusetts, a wounded veteran named Daniel Shays actually started a populist uprising in 1786 as a result of being left in financial ruin by the Continental Army. So this is the world that Elisha Thomas was living in. There were some attempts at providing relief for veterans like Thomas. Around a month after publishing the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Continental Congress did attempt to establish so-called invalid pensions for veterans who became disabled in the course of the war. But ultimately, it was just a recommendation for colonies and later states to take under consideration. Here's Dr. Dane. But they really couldn't enforce this. So some states are really kind of following the federal confederal government's orders, and some states really aren't. This created a lot of confusion for disabled veterans. The severity of a veteran's disability and the effect it had on his livelihood dictated the amount of his pension. We know that Thomas worked as a husbandman, meaning that he reared livestock. Dr. Dane told us that given his injury and his occupation, Thomas likely did not receive a full pension. So, in all likelihood, Thomas was reduced to running a gauntlet for a pittance. He was a married man with six children to feed and care for. This could not have been easy. Fortunately for Thomas, he wasn't alone. According to Dr. Dane, disabled veterans essentially needed the support of their communities to secure a pension. Veterans were required to provide extensive documentation regarding their injury, including testimony from their commanding officer, and up to three freeholders in their community. The process forced veterans to show up in district court and essentially prove the magnitude of their injuries to a panel of judges. Oh, and if your commanding officer had caught a Hessian bullet, then that was just too bad. It was an arduous process. Some veterans relied on family or close friends to get through the loopholes. Others actually hired advocates. Here's Dr. Dane. Because this is such a challenging process, right? It's so convoluted. There's so many different layers. People certainly, if they had the had the um, ability, would might hire others to negotiate this process for them. So that's actually not, that's relatively common, right? And you'll see in the pension amounts, like this has been issued. And the person, of course, takes a small cut of the ultimate, of the final pension, but they have you know, been the one to kind of manage this over and over in all the different layers. In the case of Elisha Thomas, the man who spearheaded his pension efforts was Captain Peter Drown. Side note, the captain is also called Brown in some of the records, but Drown sounds more evocative, so we'll go with that. Drown had been an officer in the Continental Army. It's not clear if he actually served with Thomas in the war, 
or whether he was a paid advocate or just someone doing a favor for a friend. Either way, we know that he pulled some strings and got Thomas the pension he needed. Thomas would later refer to him as his intimate friend, companion, and benefactor. But the close ties between Thomas and Captain Drown would soon unravel. One winter's night at a tavern in New Durham, this bond would be severed in a most violent manner, with the flick of a knife. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin, or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We know so many details about what happened between Thomas and Captain Drown, thanks to a publication called Russell's Prisoner's Magazine. Russell's ran a skull and crossbones emblazoned issue on June 3, 1788, printing Thomas's account of the event that ultimately resulted in the slaying of his friend and his own death sentence. According to Thomas, the trouble all started when he stopped at the house of Colonel Thomas Tash while traveling on February 4th, 1788. Captain Drown also lived at Tash's place. The men decided to make a night of it. 
Let's follow the group at a distance as they stroll a half mile to Mr. Randall's tavern to, quote, procure a dram. Here to guide us is Professor Sharon V. Salinger, a historian at the University of California, Irvine, with a focus on the social history of early America. Her book, Taverns and Drinking in Early America, is an account of the ins and outs of tavern and drinking culture at the dawn of the nation. As part of her research, Salinger has traveled widely, visiting numerous surviving colonial taverns. She told us that she came to a realization stopping by the Francis Tavern, a famous tavern in Manhattan's financial district that I occasioned a time or two before I quit drinking. Here's Dr. Salinger. But the thing that's interesting about them for me, and which I think might speak a little bit to your case, is that they typically had the same clientele going to them all the time. They, they drew upon a kind of regular clientele, just like the neighborhood bar today. So I had an epiphany in, um, in a New York 18th century tavern downtown where I was there around 5.30 and all of the people who came into the tavern that evening were dressed exactly alike. They were all men, all wearing suits and ties, all coming from the financial district. And again, so they, there, are, there really was this idea of the neighborhood tavern. So these early American taverns typically catered to a specific community, rich or poor, rural or urban. Here's Dr. Salinger. And if you're traveling, then you seek out the bar of your social class. You, you seek out the space of, you know, like the elites would go to one place and working people would go to another. You wouldn't, you wouldn't mix. So you could pretty much depend on everybody in that bar where it took place were pretty much equal. I mean, there's a, they have ranks in the military, but that doesn't necessarily hold over terribly much after. Um, or, or their comrades because of the military. It's not based on class. The one thing that many early American taverns did seem to have in common, according to Dr. Salinger, is the fact that they tended to be very white, very male spaces. Women might work at, visit, or in some cases even own taverns, but that tended to be quite controversial. Freedmen and Native Americans were also usually excluded from taverns in many places. Here's Dr. Salinger. Funny because we call them public houses, but it's a very narrow definition of the public. But for the men who the early American taverns accommodated, these were important gathering spaces. Technically, licensed taverns had to take on travelers, so they often served food too. Some were fancy, some were not. Some were actually fronts for brothels. Mostly, though, they were spaces where men could argue politics, handle commerce, and hang out. Here's Dr. Salinger. And you could, you could expect to meet your friends there. You would, you would go knowing that your comrades would be there, your friends would be there. Places where I had account books and can count them, people would often be there four or five times a week. So it, it's, you know, it, it, was, it was a regular part of their lives. And of course, taverns were places where men could down a lot of booze. Back around the American Revolution, people imbibed large quantities of alcohol every day. 
although what they were drinking wasn't necessarily as strong as it is now. Here's Dr. Salinger. In those days, John Adams describes in his diary of having his first beer at five in the morning. So I, I think the alcohol level wasn't as high as it is today, right? And, and the working classes and lower classes were not able to drink rum. They were drinking cider or, or small beer, and it had a less of an alcohol level on it, right? So just as you would imagine, the cost mattered. Uh, but they drank a lot, and, and they, they drank regularly. And again, this is an upper-class story um, where this guy lamented how drunk he left the tavern because every time someone joined them, they had to drink a toast to him. Drinking a toast to him meant downing it and then smashing your glass on the table. I mean, they, they didn't smash, they didn't, they didn't break, but that was the routine. So five or six people joined, he had five or six shots. You know, it was like, um, they drank a lot. <laughs> Despite all that drinking, Dr. Salinger found a surprising lack of widespread violence in the taverns that she studied. Court records were obviously part of the research, and I did not see that many, many fights, that many brawls. I only saw one in all of that 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 ended up with someone dying. It was more arguments. I mean, I would have only seen it, right, if it went into court. um, Because the stuff that I got from diaries was mainly, you know, people thinking how stupid somebody was (laughs) and yelling. And then they would forget about it the next day, you know. You know, there's no no one carrying a gun into a tavern in the the 18th century in uh, early America. Nobody. Were people just less armed then in general? Because you'd almost think it would be the opposite, that they'd be more armed. Much less armed. You know, the the Second Amendment has the uh, militia, mentions the militia, right? Most town militias had an arsenal where the weapons for the militia were kept centrally. People didn't own guns. They might own them for hunting, but they didn't, they didn't, households didn't have guns for any other reason. And the, and the arms you would have for militia for killing people is a different weapon. So, you know, they, they didn't own them. And they certainly weren't going into a tavern with them. But while certain colonies and states enacted laws to limit drunkenness, and while bartenders were supposed to cut off severely inebriated patrons, And while jurisdictions sometimes opted to ban people who we'd now consider alcoholics from taverns, heavy drinking was a facet of early American culture. Here's Dr. Salinger. Almost every crime that I saw related to a tavern was because they were smashed. While we've been discussing taverns, Elisha Thomas and his friends have gotten far ahead of us. They're already at Mr. Randall's drinking. We can try to catch up to them and burst into the warm, rum-soaked din of the tavern. But, unfortunately, it looks like Thomas in particular has already been hitting the bottle hard tonight. In Russell's magazine, Thomas later recalled drinking around a pint and a half of rum that night. We don't know his weight or the hours he spent drinking, but that's a lot of alcohol. He was definitely very intoxicated. We all know that getting drunk lowers your inhibitions. Sometimes that means tears or laughter come easy. For some, though, for those with a rage in their hearts, inebriation means that they're just a few moves away from insults, shoves, and uppercuts. At some point during the night out at Mr. Randall's, 
Colonel Tash's two sons showed up with a man named Joshua Davis. Even though Thomas, Captain Drown, and Colonel Tash had all been prepared to leave, they stayed to drink some more with the newcomers. Then, a squabble erupted between Thomas and Davis. We don't know what muttered word or slight sparked this altercation, but it got ugly. Thomas and Davis were soon grappling, kicking, and tripping one another. Thomas grabbed a rock and started beating his opponent bloody. Captain Drown stepped in to try to break up the fight. Maybe he felt that his relationship with Thomas was strong. He had served as a captain in the Continental Army. Maybe he called on that authority to try to defuse things. Either way, he pulled Thomas aside. In an article published on February 18, 1788, the Boston Gazette reported that Captain Drown endeavored, by soft words, to cool down Thomas's resentment and to dissuade him from persevering in a conduct so alarming. And then the Gazette somewhat dramatically proclaimed, But alas, what was the consequence? O oh, virtue, where was thy shield? Justice, where was thy arm? According to Russell's magazine, Thomas later said that he was knocked to the floor and that Drown tripped into him. Here's Kevin reading Thomas's account. The witnesses against me swore that Drown immediately pulled off his coat and that I went out of the door and Drown followed. I solemnly declare I know not in what manner I go out nor where I was till nearly one rod from the door. I then turned around and saw Captain Drown standing in the entry and saw him stagger. I suppose Drown's staggering was owing to liquor. I immediately heard somebody call out, Drown was killed. Thomas has killed him. You see, Thomas didn't listen to Captain Drown. He didn't even just push him away in an attempt to get back into the fray with Davis. Instead, he pulled out a knife and stabbed his friend in the stomach. One of Colonel Tash's sons tried to grab Thomas by the shoulder. Thomas sliced at him, wounding his fingers. One of the Tashes grabbed an axe, but Thomas threatened to kill anyone who came near him. Then he ran off into the night. Captain Drown lingered on for a few hours and then died. The Boston Gazette described the captain as a most amiable and deserving man, esteemed and admired by his acquaintance, revered and respected by his friends. Yet one of his own friends had done away with him for no apparent reason. At that point, Thomas became a fugitive, wanted for murder. But his time on the lamb didn't last long. Shortly thereafter, Thomas was arrested and taken to the jail in Dover, the seat of Strafford County. Other versions of the deadly bar fight began circulating. Some iterations appeared in Dover History, a 1987 book by Robert Whitehouse, as provided by the Dover Public Library website. These rumors had Thomas stabbing Captain Drown in his thigh or kidney or gutting him from his belly to his chest. Either way, Thomas had little hope in the courtroom. He'd stabbed his good friend in a tavern filled with eyewitnesses. There was little question about any of that. And in the 18th century, society at large did not have the psychological understanding we do today that could have offered a possible defense. When we spoke to Dr. Dane and Dr. Salinger, 
They both brought up the possibility that Thomas was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. That his violent outbursts could have been a result of the trauma he suffered during the American Revolution. Here's Dr. Salinger. I mean, you know, he might have had some kind of PTSD too. You know, you never know, right? He might have, he might have really suffered from his his time in the army, and the fact that he got injured like that. Um, I mean, think about no anesthetic, no an- antiseptic. You know, so I would imagine that he was troubled soul. Which again speaks to the unusual nature of, of this murder in a way. And here's Dr. Dane. This wasn't diagnosed or, or even understood at all in the same way that we would today. I see this actually in pension records all the time, right? So where somebody's been hit in the head and has never been the same since, has been in a stupor, all sorts of words to describe what we would sort of imagine today to be PTSD. But of course, our modern day understanding of PTSD has no bearing on Thomas's case. Nor did his expressions of deep remorse move the court. He was convicted of murder and condemned to die for the slaying of Captain Drown. But that wasn't the end of Thomas's sorrows. You see, he was given certain freedoms, even as he was imprisoned on death row. According to White House's Dover history, a warden named Theophilus Dame allowed Thomas to attend services under guard at Dover's first parish meeting house. Thomas's wife was also permitted to come visit him. On one trip, she brought the couple's youngest child, leaving the older five back at home. The unthinkable happened. Whether through a tragic accident or the work of a vengeful arsonist, the Thomas home caught on fire between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. The oldest child escaped the flames. The bodies of 11-year-old Joseph, 9-year-old Hannah, 7-year-old Sarah, and 5-year-old James were discovered in the ashes. And as Mrs. Thomas returned to New Durham to bury her children, she actually broke three ribs after the horses drawing her sleigh became frightened and crashed into another cart. What must have Thomas felt at hearing what befell his children and his wife as he sat trapped in a cell around 25 miles away? At the end of April of 1788, Thomas made his escape attempt. Whitehouse's account has him unable to squeeze his body out the top of the chimney, rather than the detail about daylight hindering his flight. Either way, he never made it back home. According to White House, Thomas spent his final night on Earth with his wife, and she bore his last child nine months later. On June 3, 1788, Thomas was executed in front of a crowd of around 6,000 people. White House reported that the local taverns did good business that day, catering to the spectators. Thomas the prisoner they were all coming to see, was seemingly a broken man at the end, shaking and having trouble standing up as he neared the gallows. In Thomas's dying speech, as printed in Russell's, at least, he expressed his affection for Captain Drown. He denied rumors that he'd previously murdered another person and said he had no ill will against the court and its officers for doing their jobs. 
He counseled others to avoid bad company, intemperance, and giving way to unruly passions. And he concluded by saying, I now recommend my soul to the all-merciful creator of all worlds and all creatures, most ardently imploring the forgiveness of my manifold transgressions, and that the Redeemer would most graciously receive me to the arms of his everlasting mercy when I leave this world. In 2014, Foster's Daily Democrat ran a story about how the playground at Henry Law Park in Dover sits near the site of the old gallows. One wonders about what Thomas would have been thinking as he stepped up to the noose. Was it sheer panic? Flashes of the war? The drunken, deadly dispute at the tavern? The expectant eyes of the crowd? Or did his mind retreat somewhere kinder? His wife's embrace the night before. The last time he heard his children laughing. The warmth of the summer sun. We'd like to offer our sincere thanks to Dr. Dane and Dr. Salinger for their expertise and time. Dr. Dane is currently working on a book, and we will link to her article about pensions for veterans with disabilities, as well as some pension records she's uploaded to the magazine of Early American Datasets. We'll also link to Dr. Salinger's book on Early American Tavern Culture. For this episode, we relied on excerpts from Dover History by Robert Whitehouse, as released by the Dover Public Library. We also drew upon Russell Magazine's life and dying speech of Elisha Thomas from the New Hampshire Historical Society collection, Daniel Allen Hearn's Legal Executions in New England, a comprehensive reference, the history of Stratford County, New Hampshire by John Scales, and reporting from the Massachusetts Spy and the Boston Gazette. And of course, the way we even found out about this case in the first place was through the Criminal Justice Research Center at The Ohio State University. Specifically, the file Homicide Among Adults in New Hampshire and Vermont, 1775-1900, through 1900, by history professor Randolph Roth. For further reading, Kevin and I are currently enjoying True Crime, an American anthology by Harold Schechter, and would recommend it to anyone interested in a historical deep dive into true crime. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
marketing, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.